This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, uh, this is Aaron Weinacht, and I'm here with uh, the Russian and Eurasian Studies section of the New Books Network. And today we're talking to uh, one of my uh, grad school mentors, uh, Dan Rowland, who's got a new book, kind of an unusual book, uh, on the uh, political culture of early modern Russia. It's called God, Tsar, and People. So thanks for taking the time to talk to me about it, Dan. Oh, it's my pleasure. Believe me. Oh, uh, I I mentioned here that this is kind of an unusual book. And so I was wondering if you could just start off by describing uh, what, what kind of book is this? Well, maybe, Aaron, what you meant by, first of all, uh, let me tell you how fond my memories are of you as a graduate student. Your, your, work, your work on Ayn Rand is really quite sensational. Uh, and I hope it gets the, the attention that it deserves. Uh, Ayn Rand is really a pivotal figure in the American right, and uh, I, I think your th- your work on her has been really important. Anyway, uh, the reason I think that the book is a little unusual, it's a collection of essays that I've written over a period of almost 50 years. Um, uh, and uh, the very first essay is an unpublished essay that I wrote in graduate school, uh, before uh, uh, some major redating of documents, which we can come to maybe later. Uh, And I had it in my drawer until this book came out, and I took it out, and I I left it almost exactly the way it was. And the final essay I wrote uh, a year ago this last summer um, in preparation for the publication of the book, uh, so that really spans my whole academic career. Uh, And... uh, these essays just deal with different topics uh, in the really what you might call the history of political thought in early modern Russia. Uh, it covers the period more or less 1450 to 1700, but really concentrates on the 16th and early 17th century, that is to say, maybe uh, 1500 to 1650. Uh, and I, uh, what I'm trying to do in the book uh, is to figure out from the evidence that we have, which is uh, a little bit different than the kind of evidence that exists for such a period in Western Europe, from the evidence that we have, uh, writings and particularly images, um, I'm trying to figure out how the Russians imagined uh, their own political structure. What did they think about the czar? Uh, uh, what did they think about the obligations uh, and rights, if they ever would use that word, which they didn't, of his subjects, and so on. So I wanted to kind of capture the uh, imagination of early modern Russians as it relates to what we would call politics. Oh, thanks for the, the summary there, Dan. Uh, I was wondering, maybe before you get farther into the book, if you'd mind uh, telling everybody since the book starts back at the beginning of your academic career, how'd you get into uh, studying Russian history to begin with? You actually talk about that a little bit in the introduction, as I recall. I I do. Uh, Well, uh, it's a very strange tale um, and a a somewhat abbreviated version uh, is that I really got into Russian history through music. Uh, I was, singing in 1963, in the summer of 63, with the Yale Glee Club. Uh, and uh, uh, we sang in, in Belgrade uh, and went to a reception at the home or the, the, the home of the ambassador, who was George Kennan. Uh, and so we got into a conversation with George Kennan. But more importantly, 
there was a folk dancing group at this reception uh, from Serbia. And uh, I just love the music. I love Serbian music. I love Macedonian music. I'd never heard it really before. Uh, and of course, this folk orchestra struck up uh, a, a, a Serbian dance. Uh, and a beautiful Serbian woman took me by the hand and asked me if I'd like to dance in a long line. And of course, I had no idea how to dance, but I, I really wanted to learn. And so fast forward, uh, I was on a scholarship, of, uh, uh, a Marshall scholarship to England, and I immediately found uh, a Balkan folk dancing group uh, and uh, joined it. Uh, and that almost everybody in the folk dancing group, or at least many people, were in the uh, choir of a very small Orthodox church there in, in Oxford, England. Uh, and so I began to sing in the choir uh, and became very interested in Russian affairs. Uh, and that's how I got interested in Russia. Now, we all have these little winding journeys. You know, I think mine happened because I happened to cross crime and punishment on my dad's bookshelf when I was like 12, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah it's amazing, actually, how, how much coincidence happens. But, you know, as it relates to the book, uh, because of that kind of introduction and that you have crime and punishment as a gateway, I think it's really interesting looking at your work. But I think that I had music as a gateway, uh, which is really part of culture. Uh, I'm really a cultural historian. I, 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 I think is a kind of my, uh, uh, I guess, uh, the kind of creed of my craft uh, is that I, I try to foreground the role that culture plays in causing political events. So I'm a, in that way, and maybe only in that way, a kind of anti-Marxist. Uh, I, I really look to culture. And so all of this, my book is all about political culture uh, and ways that it may have affected people's behavior and not the other way around. So uh, uh, kind of moving into the meat of the, uh, of the book then, um, you've, you've emphasized in a number of ways, like not trying to, tr excuse me, trying not to um, uh, evaluate uh, you know, Muscovite history with categories that don't seem to apply very well. You know, like I was thinking in particular, you've got a section in there where you're, you're essentially saying that the question, why didn't the boyars revolt if Ivan was so bad is a bad question to ask, right? So could you talk a bit about, you know, what it means to speak the language that people in that political culture are speaking rather than one that's imported from outside? Yeah. Uh, actually, Aaron, thank you. That's a that's really a, a good and very important question. Um, when I began my work as a graduate student, it seemed to me that the categories that historians, 20th century historians were asking uh, were in some ways misleading. And the misleading questions led, I thought, to a misreading from misleading to misreading of evidence. Uh, and so what I tried to do, and I'm sure that I didn't succeed completely and that other people will do a better job, but I tried to just go to the sources and listen as carefully as I could to what they said. Uh, and uh, as I argue in a number of the pieces in the book, uh, there's a kind of subtext uh, in all of these sources, which is A, the Bible, and B, even more important, uh, liturgical texts that use use biblical texts, because the liturgical texts would have been more familiar to Muscovite uh, uh, audience uh, than than probably a biblical text, uh, and so I tried to tune my antennae into hearing these uh, quotations, um, and then I tried to uh, understand the language of political discourse in its own terms, rather than trying to impose uh, 20th century questions. Uh, let me just qualify to say that it's perfectly legitimate and important that 20th century historians and now 21st century historians ask our own questions. So I think it's important to know or to ask the question was, uh, let's say, uh, 16th century Russia or 17th century Russia, was it uh, a basically a kind of dictatorship? And did it lay the ground uh, for what Vladimir Putin is now uh, doing in, in Russia now? Uh, 
And that's a perfectly legitimate question. But I think that before you can answer it, you need to kind of go back to the sources and see the language that they employ to describe their thought. And then once you understand that in as as much a full dimension as you can, then you apply your findings to answer questions that 20th century historians or 21st century historians want to know. So it's a kind of two-stage listening process. And without very careful attending to the meaning of the sources, uh, it's very easy to come up with oversimplified answers using... uh, you know, not really 19th and 20th century historians' categories that don't really belong. Um, one thing, one example of that, and there's lots of others, is our idea of politics. Uh, this is something that I've kind of worried to death in my work, uh, but we imagine politics uh, in a, really a 19th century context, which has come back over into the 20th century and into our own time in 21st century America. Uh, And politics for us is a kind of game where political actors get together because they agree on uh, a series of of, uh, uh, a series of policy positions uh, and that on the basis of that agreement, they agree to act together. uh, And that is what constitutes politics, people acting together uh, in pursuing in pursuit of, of of a group of policies in Russia is really especially before Peter, but really way after Peter too, um, that kind of politics didn't really exist. Uh, And so, especially if you look at uh, Soviet scholarship up through, up through the nineties, really up through the eighties, they're talking about a boyar party uh, and a a party of new men uh, and so on, as if these are like 19th or 20th century political parties. Uh, But, uh, other scholars uh, have looked at this, and, and I've looked at it from an ideological point of view, and there's very, very little evidence that people came together to act to implement agreed-on policies. Uh, they basically didn't have the kind of politics that we think of, uh, and therefore, using the word politics is, is just al- already brings in a whole set of ideas in our brains that weren't there in the brains of early modern Russians. So that said, then you look at it from the other direction and say, how if we can use the word politics, what was in their minds when they used such a, a word? If not, you know, well, thinking of parties now, for instance. Well, I, I, I don't think I've come up with a good answer to that, to be truthful. I mean, in the whole book, but I, what I've tried to do in a series of essays is to look at various pieces of evidence that gives us good clues. Uh, And so they're thinking, I think that uh, God uh, chose the czar uh, and that they should obey the czar because God chose him. Uh, And that's a very uh, well-known trope, common and essentially ubiquitous in all the sources. But what's less well-known is that the political culture of, of early modern Russia gave uh, the people that were thinking about the Tsar criteria by which they could judge uh, the qualities of the ruler, uh, and they could decide whether he was a good or bad ruler. And if they decided he was a bad enough ruler, uh, then he would slide over from kind of God-appointed uh, and therefore you know, uh, uh, all-powerful to God-opposing. Uh, and that uh, sort of meant that he was a uh, forerunner of Antichrist. The Russians were preoccupied by uh, eschatology and by the, the coming of the end days. Um, and so either he was a forerunner of Antichrist uh, or he might even be Antichrist himself. But in that case, you have to withdraw. It's not that you have the right to withdraw, but you have the obligation to withdraw your allegiance from him. Um, and so you have these two poles and there's a middle pole I'll come to in just a moment. On the one, uh, what, at the end of one pole is a an all-powerful ruler who represents whose whose will or whose dictates represent God's will and who must be obeyed. Uh, and at the other pole is uh, essentially the end of history, where the God-appointed ruler of Russia has disappeared, uh, and he's 
place has been taken by an imposter. Um, and that means that the end of the world is coming uh, and, uh, you know, head for the hills. <laughs> it's, it's not, there's no really conclusion of what happens. It's a very costly, um, it's a very costly uh, uh, conclusion to come to. But in between those two poles was, I think, where uh, political life really occurred, which is that the Russians believed, and there's lots and lots of evidence of all kinds about this, that a wise ruler and a just ruler rules with advice. The advice uh, should ideally come from godly men. And therefore, if you make a diagram, and in the book, I, I made a diagram. My wife was an illustrator, actually made a diagram for me. Uh, it's in an essay uh, of a very, very important early 17th century writer called Ivan Timofeyev. But if she, she's, yeah, hey, when I'm, I'm on this interview, uh, uh, you could imagine uh, the will of God coming down like a lightning bolt uh, uh, into the head of the czar. Uh, but then, if that's interrupted for some, some reason, it's the role of wise advisors uh, to reconnect the czar to God's will. And so the most important qualification of the wise advisors is that they be godly. But it also, the Russians also believed that, uh, that there's an important uh, social order uh, and that that social order ought to be kept. And so therefore they imagined that the most senior people in the social order, boyars, uh, senior military men, senior clerics, would be the people to give that kind of advice. So on the, the problem of advice, like what is it that inherently makes advice a problem? I, I mean, I guess from my point of view, it looks like it's that, uh, well, if the czar is in theory all powerful, then what kind of advice could they need? Well, yeah, this is what's been really hard to communicate, I think. And it's hard for the sources to communicate it to me, and then it's been hard for me to communicate it elsewhere. But the, I think that the error has been by modern historians to equate the idea of advice, as I've just explained it, with a kind of parliamentary structure. And so a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, late 19th and very early 20th century Russian historians imagined that these writers were sort of proto-parliamentarians, and they had a kind of constitutional idea of advice that the Boyar Duma, or the so-called Assembly of the Land, um, um, a kind of shady and not often called group of people with representatives from all the towns, um, that those two, uh, those two organs uh, were sort of proto-parliamentary or parliamentary, and that they would uh, then uh, in time grow into a kind of uh, parliamentary democracy. And many of these historians were in the late 19th century hoping for a parliamentary democracy in Russia. Uh, and it makes every sense that they were thinking about this, these things in that way. But I think my critique of their view is that really these categories were not parliamentary or constitutional. They were purely moral. That the ability to give advice depends on the moral quality of the advisor in the same way that the ability of the czar to reflect, or the czar's will to reflect God's will, is depends on the moral quality of the czar. So the, the, these moral categories, which really don't have uh, any political meaning in our sense of the word, a, a political party or a constitutional uh, uh, philosophy, uh, these moral categories were very important and uh were very important in lots of other polities, particularly uh, early medieval Europe. So basically, Russia's trying to work out uh, an idea uh, of po politics uh, using these moral uh, categories, which just cannot be easily translated into modern political terms. If that's, uh, if that's true, what do you think accounts overall for the desire of any number of historians to find what ultimately isn't there. I mean, is it simply, you know, is it wishful thinking? Is it some kind of uh, late 19th century Whig impulse? Uh, 
Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. I don't have a really good answer to it, but uh, maybe just another personal story that uh, I was listening to uh, when I was studying in Oxford. I did an undergraduate degree in modern history, uh, and I decided I would take a. You can choose which papers you're going to take, and I took a paper in early modern Russian history, uh, and I. I'm quite sure I was one of a very, very, very small number of people to take that paper, which is the reason for my choosing it. Uh, and I, in order to prepare it for it, I went to a series of lectures by uh, a, a very famous Oxford professor, Dmitry Obolensky. Now, I don't think he's still alive, actually, but Sir Dmitry Obolensky, who was a Byzantinist, but uh, felt... Uh, quite entitled to give a, a series of lectures every other year on uh, early modern Russia. And what he said uh, in those lectures, they were he was a very good lecturer and very compelling, but what he said about Russia in those lectures, for me, bore an uncanny resemblance to what British historians were saying about England uh, right around the beginning of the of the 20th century, right around let's say 1900, uh, and indeed, as I looked into it further, uh, Kluchevsky uh, and a number of other really important Russian historians uh, were were reading English history and getting many of their ideas. Uh, I don't know they got their ideas, but certainly they were. It looked like they were getting ideas uh, from uh, early 20th century British historians like A.J. Pollard or someone like that, uh, and then bringing them over to Russia. So you have a political landscape that's really framed in the same way that early English historians, that is to say early 20th century historians, were framing English history, where you have a monarchy trying to repress the nobility, a group of new men that the uh, uh, monarch chose to ally himself with to oppose the power of the aristocracy. So you have an aristocratic party and you have a new men party or a monarchical party. Uh, all of this furniture was sort of adopted, uh, you know, I think pretty literally by uh, Russian historians and then pasted into Russia. And as I was learning in Oxford, um, those views have long since been discarded, and uh, you know, as they regard as they relate to England. Uh, but if they were inappropriate for England, they were even less appropriate for Muscovy. So I think your question is a revealing one, um, and I I would like sometime to do more work. I'm 81 years old. Whether I get to do it or not, I don't know. But I think that there's a really nice. Uh, you know, book or, or series of articles to be written about the influence of English historiography, that is to say, English history writing uh, on Russian history writing uh, and the period ju just leading up to the revolution. And then to finish this somewhat bizarre story, uh, uh, clearly with the revolution, uh, they wanted to, the, the, the new Bolshevik government wanted to throw out these bourgeois ideas. Uh, but then, because Stalin didn't like some of the chief uh, uh, Marxist historians, he brought back uh, the Kluchevsky students and sort of ushered back in these old, uh, old pre-revolutionary views of what was happening in Russia. And not only did he do that, but he made it politically impossible to oppose those views. So you have a really strange historiographical situation, uh, which I think is really fascinating, but is also, you know, possibly problematic. Well, it reminds me a bit of the uh, Russian socialist habit in the mid-19th century of reading Hochstausen instead of looking out their back doors at the peasant commune. It's a very similar kind of dynamic there. Yeah, that's a great parallel, and I think that's it. Um, and I think that, you know, I mean, historians, uh, like, you know, like, like other people, really are prone to think about, uh, you know, the questions that they ask in connection with their own lived, you know, lived experience. And one of the things that has really intrigued me is that historians of my generation have really been intrigued and, and, and really concentrated, and certainly I have, on the question of, uh, you know, was 
uh, Russia in the 16th and 17th century, uh, an absolute ruler, absolute, again, is a somewhat problematical word, but I think what people meant is a kind of dictatorial uh, uh, arrangement in which the Tsar was all powerful and no power resided at all uh, in either the people or the aristocracy or the army or anywhere else or the church. Uh, and I've tried to question that. So that's a kind of, I think that's a question that I thought was important because of my own life experiences. But the the, the younger generation coming up you know, now isn't particularly interested in that question. Maybe because of the war in Ukraine, they'll get more interested in it again and Putin, but they're really doing other things. And so I think it's inevitable that historians ask questions that they, you know, that their life experience lead them to want to ask. And it just keeps the field alive that the next generation asks other questions, which is wonderful. So, uh, um, I was wondering then, since you bring up the question of uh, Russia being some kind of dictatorial state, like <clears throat> this is uh, actually a pretty big debate, or at least it has been in the past. You think you could kind of sketch out for listeners the kind of broad contours of that debate? Yes, yes, I can quickly. Uh, it's now really kind of an old debate. It hasn't, no, one, no one's contributed to it much. You know, I, my essays uh, in, the, in the book deal with that, uh, I think, a, a lot, but not many people are really publishing directly on that. Uh, but basically, there were two schools of thought. Uh, one uh, it, uh, held that, the, that really the Tsar held almost complete power uh, and very little power was left to the nobles. Uh, who were regarded themselves as his slaves, and even less power was left to the peasants, who, uh, you know, basically lived uh, solitary and ignorant lives. Um, and uh, so, and I think that that view had its roots really in the scholarship of Richard Pipes of Harvard, uh, who published a famous book uh, called Russia Under the Old Regime. But uh, maybe it's not a good idea to name all the adherents of that view, but um, it was a it, it it was you know there was considerable polemical exchange on that subject um, uh, with their two really important historians who represented that point of view. I would say the uh, a lot of the other major scholars in the field, at least in the West, and this has really been a Western controversy. I don't think Russian uh, scholars have really got involved in it. Uh, I think there's pretty good reasons for that. But anyway, it's a Western controversy. And uh, I think most of the people have, have said that this view is just oversimplified. Uh, and I think I'm probably out on one end of the uh, of the field in saying that Russians really believed that the Tsar had responsibilities and that people were aware of those responsibilities. Uh, and if he misbehaved, uh, there could be serious consequences. So this is, I suppose, an anti-dictatorial view. Uh, uh, but uh, my colleagues, and I, I deal with this in the final essay uh, in the book, my colleagues have, have coming at this from lots and lots of different uh, points of view have 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 shown also that uh, there were many other sources of political power in Russia beyond the unitary wish of the monarch. Um, I think what they've decided is that basically, <coughs> and this is Ned Keenan's position. I think he's maybe the inspirer of much of this, and certainly uh, he's an inspirer of mine. But he argued uh, in a couple of essays that Russia. Uh, by European standards or by even world standards, was a very weak political, uh, uh, had a very weak political structure. It didn't have a lot of money. The state didn't have a lot of money. Uh, it had a rudimentary bureaucracy for much of the time. Uh, and it simply lacked the ability to enforce its will on uh, all these citizens. So this idea of a kind of, you might even say, proto-Stalinist or proto-fascist uh, kind of uh, 16th century uh, uh, regime uh, just doesn't make sense if you look at the simply at the uh, at the the forces at the disposal of the Muscovite state uh, it was it just it just didn't have the power to do that um, 
And I think that's true really all the way up to the time of Peter the Great and even to some extent uh, under Peter. So uh, let's just take an example of the, uh, the law. Uh, Nancy Coleman has a wonderful new book. Well, it's not new now, but uh, she looked at the way the law actually worked in Russia by looking at case after case after case. And I don't want to misrepresent her, but I think she may have looked at all the surviving cases before the time of Peter the Great. And most of them are in the 17th century. But the point is that the Tsar, uh, he wanted the law to work. Uh, uh, the Tsar did, the imperial regime or the, or the, or the Tsarist regime wanted the law to, law to work. And in order for it to work, they had to en- enlist local helpers because law, much law was local law. Uh, involving land disputes or or insult disputes or whatever. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the Tsar had to incorporate the help of a lot of local grandees, but in some cases even peasants, uh, to help execute the law. Uh, and one of the things that Nancy discovered is that uh, you didn't want to be uh, uh, let, sort of... Uh, giving down, handing down a legal judgment uh, unless you took the advice of people uh, 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 around you. You needed to have a proper legal procedure. You couldn't just just arrest someone and, and execute them or throw them in prison. Uh, you need to have proper, proper procedure, and that proper procedure required uh, local help. And uh, Nancy and I have both noticed that whenever the Tsar is issuing important decisions in, in a chronicle or in, in a li- illustrated chronicle or in other visual sources, he's always surrounded by advisors. So that's really where this idea of advisors come in. They legitimize a decision. Uh, and in the cases where the Tsar did not follow legal procedure, it's clear the chroniclers condemned those decisions, decisions as, as lawless and, and bad. So uh, what what might be some other examples then of uh, like points in society that provide checks on the power of the czar? I mean, is the like where does the, where does the church fit into this equation, for instance, or you know uh, stories about bad kings who didn't listen? Or <laughs> yeah, well, uh, b- before answering that question directly. Uh, I think uh, there's been a kind of rearranging uh, of the mental furniture of historians, Russian historians overall, uh, in the way they think about Russian history. Because I think that particularly, uh, you know, non-historian laymen, uh, when they think of Russian history, they think of Stalin, Peter the Great, and Ivan the Terrible. And they're the kind of iconic rulers and their style of rule, which was very, very heavy handed for sure. And, and I think in the case of Stalin, to say heavy handed is a pretty, pretty radical understatement um, uh, that those rulers were iconic and, and really represented uh, uh, typical Russian political structures. And I think what uh, I think scholars have done throughout Russian, you know, on the writing about the whole uh, reign of Russian history, the whole long uh, period of Russian history, is to see those people as exceptions. And that, in fact, uh, Russian rulers succeeded when they were able to come to an agreement with particularly their elites and on the basis of that agreement to govern the country. So uh, I think this is really Ned Keenan's big perception, was that the that the ruler by himself was really much weaker, both economically, uh, geographically, perhaps, though this is a little more questionable, even militarily. Uh, Had the great boyars wanted to move against uh, a ruler, uh, they might have been able to do so. Of course, they did not. So that's another question. But anyway, the rulers, the the, the elite together uh, were more powerful than the czar by himself. Uh, and and Keenan used to like to use the metaphor uh, of a planet circling the sun, or even more, protons surrounding an atom, um, in which there's more atomic mass uh, in the surroundings than in the, in the center. Uh, 
and that basically Russia succeeded as a political entity when the elite and the rulers uh, were able to agree on what to do. And uh, their description of the political system, Keenan's description in particular, and I've completely persuaded by this, is that Russia succeeded when the elite uh, and the ruler agreed and ruled together. And when they didn't agree, uh, then things could really fall apart. Uh, and there were, Aaron, as you know, and, 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 and your listeners uh, probably know as well, there were periods of civil war in the Muscovite period. There was civil wars in the 15th century, the so-called time of troubles uh, at the end of the uh, 16th and the beginning of the 17th century, where things really did fall apart. Uh, and in a situation where that agreement between the elite and the ruler fell apart, then uh, you really had some very painful and, 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 and uh, economically disastrous, uh, you know, dangerous times when people got killed and, and, and uh, the state got much weaker, uh, foreign, foreign uh, neighbors inter- invaded. Uh, all these things happened that were highly undesirable. So there was a tremendous argument uh, in favor of uh, the elite agreeing and I think that a lot of people, I'll mention Russ Martin here, uh, a very close colleague who wrote an introduction to my book. But, I mean, he's, he's gone to great lengths to show how the political mechanisms of the court in Muscovite Russia were arranged to prevent conflict between the ruler and the elite and to prevent conflict among groups of elite members. And this meant, again, that they didn't have that kind of 19th century idea of politics that we were talking about a minute ago, they there was a huge common interest in agreeing and then presenting a united front to outsiders, particularly foreign outsiders. Um, so uh, uh, I think that really deals with the elite. The church is more complicated. Um, and again, the, 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 the standard view of the church is that it was simply uh, the handmaid of, of the of the ruler, uh, and in some cases that it was uh, Ivan the Terrible certainly was able to execute, uh, to arrest and execute, uh, 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 you know, the heads of the church. But a century later, uh, you have a patriarch, patriarch Nikon, uh, who asserted the super- superiority of the church over the state, uh, and so the church was trying to, in a sense, mind its own business. Uh, they were trying to get some kind of control over the parish clergy, which essentially barely, that control barely existed in the 16th century. In the 17th century, the church is trying to increase discipline. Uh, Paul Bushkovich has written a lot about this. Uh, but the church, again, did not see its role uh, in the way that the papacy did as a counterpoise to the government. It saw its role as hoping as helping to promote this necessary agreement uh, upon which really the, 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 the prosperity and the success of the realm depended. So, uh, and I think this goes back to the different histories of the papacy uh, and of the Russian Orthodox Church uh, and particularly Aristotelian political thought, which gave papal uh, apologists and also royal apologists, lots of political tools, lots of intellectual tools to fight ideological battles. Uh, And then you have an independent papacy in Rome, not under the control of any particular ruler. The environment is completely different in Muscovy. And so the outcome is really different. So I would not say at all that the church was powerless, quite on the contrary, but it did not choose, I think for pretty good reasons, to try to assert itself uh, against a ruler. Uh, and I think maybe the greatest uh, uh, example of a r- ruler who did, of, of a church leader who did do that was Metropolitan Philippe, uh, who did his best to uh, upbraid Ivan for his immoral actions and was eventually arrested and finally murdered in a cell. So uh, um, maybe wrapping up this uh, particular theme then, uh, the right answer to Richard Haley's question about why the Muscovite elite didn't rebel is that they correctly perceived that it was not in their best interest to do that. Yes, I think that's exactly right. In in a large, 
in a large, well, again, I think from a practical point of view, uh, it was not in their interest to do that. And then you also had an ideology uh, that made it very, you know, a, a political culture that made it costly to do that. Because if you finally decided that the czar had to be resisted, you know, in, in a forceful way, not not by wise advisors, but resisted militarily, then you get into uh, thinking that the czar was the antichrist uh, and the whole political, there was no, me, me, it's the same situation with Putin now, there was really no mechanism for selecting another czar. Uh, and so replacing the czar was a very costly step. Right. Like the uh, the problem in China of what, what do you do when there's a bad emperor? Yes. Yeah. Oh. This was a problem, Aaron, you know, of all, early modern and medieval political systems. What do you do with a bad king, as, as Ned used to say, Ned Keenan? Um, and it was it, it just bugged everybody until there was a parliamentary alternative. Uh, and then it became, uh, if not moot, at least less pressing. Speaking of uh, rulers uh, who at least have a bad reputation, uh, you've got an interesting section in the book on uh, some architectural uh, business under Boris Godunov. I was wondering if you could talk about that, particularly since for lots of listeners, uh, probably their total exposure to Boris Godunov is a result of ro- watching Rocky and Bullwinkle. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, uh, 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 I wonder if you could uh, could talk a bit about the uh, you know Boris Godunov's architectural uh, project. Well, um, there's a, a paper I've just been uh, just finished uh, last week uh, makes a point uh, that uh, Russian Russian culture believed in typology, uh, uh, and this is somewhat roundabout answer to your question, but. Um, Basically, uh, they believe that a Russian ruler could be a type of an Old Testament ruler. And so going back to Yaroslav the Wise, uh, who was important both for Russia and for Ukraine, obviously, who was the grand prince in Kiev. Uh, Yaroslav was a younger son, uh, but he was, uh, and he overthrew his older brother in a civil war. Uh, but uh, he was regarded as the second Solomon because he built Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom, the Church of Holy Wisdom, uh, in 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 uh, in Kiev. Uh, and for building that, he was called uh, Yaroslav the Wise. I think Boris Godunov wanted to be called uh, Boris the Wise uh, because he had very ambitious architectural plans for rebuilding essentially the whole uh, complex in, in whole in the Kremlin. Um, and uh, had he succeeded, uh, and had he founded uh, a dynasty the way the Romanovs did a few years later, um, I think he'd be remembered probably as as maybe Boris the Wise or Boris the Wannabe Wise. But Boris was, a, I think, a really interesting person. Um, his historians are really divided. Uh, uh, a lot of my friends who know the most about him really think he was a tyrant or a very brutal ruler, and he was. Uh, I see him as a, a much more modern ruler. He was very interested in the West, uh, sent ambassadors to find out what was going on. Um, uh, he, uh, he made a speech at his coronation. He took off his shirt and said that uh, he'd take off his shirt and give it to the poorest of the poor in order to help them. And uh, he dealt, there were some very serious famines caused by uh, by cyclical weather patterns in, in, in northern Europe, and people were starving. And he did a really good job, I think, in making the royal granaries available to the common people and dealing, I mean, he's a little bit like Trump and, 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 uh, and Biden trying to deal with the pandemic. He was dealt, I think, amazingly effectively with a very surprise uh, 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 sort of bad situation that occurred because of the weather. Um, uh, but uh, Boris Godunov uh, was not, he was not uh, from the royal re- ruling family, which had ruled Russia since Kievan times. Um, uh, he, he was, in, in that sense, an upstart. Uh, and 
some of his descendants came from the Mongols or from the uh, Chinggisids, um, and not really from from Slavic uh, uh, descendants. Of course, <laughs> the original Rurikais were were Scandinavians, which <laughs> complicates the problem even more. But nonetheless, they weren't from the traditional ruling clan. Uh, he wasn't from the traditional ruling clan, and so he was regarded to some extent as a usurper. And he was very interesting to me because he had to create legitimacy for himself that did not depend on his being the eldest son of the reigning czar, which had been the pattern uh, really from about 1500 on. Uh, and so he had to create legitimacy, which he did by uh, demonstrating his piety, uh, showing his military capability and success, and so on. So he's a really fascinating person. Uh, uh, but uh, his his luck ran out. Um, there was a person, uh, actually the, the Poles were very anxious to remove him because I think they realized he was a much more capable ruler than, than, than Ivan had been or that any of the interim rulers had been. Um, and so... Um, the Poles encouraged a pretender, uh, and a civil war ensued, uh, and Boris uh, died as a result of that civil war. Uh, so he didn't succeed. Under other circumstances, it seems to me, this is counterfactual history, but under other circumstances, it seems he, he might well have established a dynasty. He had a son and a daughter. They were both healthy and apparently, uh, you know, admirable people, if one could say that. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, had there not been a civil war uh, and there not been this whole issue of legitimacy, which is a political cultural question for sure, uh, then uh, he might have established the dynasty. But again, this shows the importance of culture because the Russian political culture simply did not have a method for choosing a ruler who was not the God-chosen uh, ruler in their imagination, and the God-chosen ruler was the eldest son of the former ruler. And so long as that pattern existed, it really held. Uh, without it, then things really fell apart. And those civil wars, I think, really illustrate the pain that occurs when uh, disagreements among the elite and between the elite and the ruler break out. Um, maybe... Uh... One more kind of big question here about some material you covered in the book uh, specifically. Uh, you do this kind of big uh, think piece towards the end of the book, the, the, the Ivan is the Carolingian Renaissance Prince piece. And I was, I was wondering if you could, you could talk about that uh, for, for a bit. What's the, what's the benefit then uh, if, if Ivan is, it, Ivan is kind of a problem no matter what point of view you come at him from. And, and uh, I certainly got a lot out of the, uh, the interview I did with uh, Charles Halperin over that book of his on, on Ivan the Fourth here in the last, no, was that a couple of years ago? I think that came out now. Uh, so what's, uh, what's the benefit of looking at, at Ivan the Fourth through the, the lens of a, the Carolingian Renaissance? What do, we, what do we gain by looking at him that way? Well, I think what we gain, and what gave me a lot of pleasure in writing that, uh, was that uh, that was a reply to uh, uh, a, a pretty famous and influential essay by Charles Halperin's uh, thesis advisor, Michael Chernyavsky. And the title of Michael Chernyavsky's essay was, Ivan the Terrible as a Renaissance Prince. And what Chernyavsky was trying to do in that essay was to say that in many ways, uh, Ivan's court was quite close to uh, the court of a Renaissance prince, let's, uh, you know, a Medici or, 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 or whatever, uh, and, uh, and that political thinking at his time was comparable, and that uh, it was that basically Russia was much closer to uh, contemporary Europe than it was. Uh, than I think it really was. Uh, and so in the essay, uh, I said uh, that really, if you're trying to find a parallel uh, in Western Europe to the Russia of Ivan the Terrible, the best parallel is to Carolingian Europe. 
And my strong suit, because this is what I work with, is the, is the, is the suit of political thought. Um, and if you look at political thought in Western Europe, uh, with Machiavelli and Hobbes and uh, there are a whole plethora of people, Baudin, uh, Russian political thought is miles away from them. And Russians under Ivan the Terrible were dealing with this question that you and I were just talking uh, about uh, just a minute ago, Aaron, which is, what do you do with a bad king? And I think our conversation has, has illustrated, at least I hope it has, that the Russians simply didn't have a good answer for that. Uh, they didn't know what to do with a bad king. Uh, they didn't want to, they couldn't, didn't want to kill him or replace him because there was no mechanism for doing that. They could try to persuade him through moral suasion uh, that he should do things differently. But if in the end, like Ivan himself, he proved impervious to that, then there was nothing really to be done. But in addition to talking about political thought, uh, I also talked about the the kind of surviving sources that we have, which are remarkably sane. We don't have all the plethora of new genres that appeared in the late Middle Ages and particularly in early modern Europe and in, in Western Europe. So you don't have, there's no Shakespeare, obviously. Uh, you don't have any, any uh, genre of fiction. Uh, you don't have genres... Uh, uh, of autobiography, really. Um, I mean, there's lots of things. There is an autobiography of, of, of an old believer named Avakum, uh, but really the intellectual scene uh, really is very, very unlike uh, the scene in, in a Western European country. Uh, now, it's not that there were no similarities at all, but I think if you're looking for a parallel, uh, the most obvious parallel is with Carolingian Europe. Uh, and uh, when I was writing that essay, I had the chance to read uh, a lot of Western European sort of Carolingian history writing and also uh, Western scholarship about that writing. And it struck me as being much closer to what I was trying to say about political thought in early modern uh, Russia in the time of Ivan the Terrible than uh, what I, if I were reading an essay about Machiavelli, for example, or Hobbes. Um, I had the chance, uh, and one of the, the essay, resulting essays in the book, uh, to be part of a collaborative investigation of political thought in early modern Europe. And so I was involved in very lengthy discussions. We had four meetings in Europe where we all got together. Uh, they were scholars who were experts in political thought in Italy, uh, in France, in England, in Poland, uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, in, uh, in uh, uh, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, I mean, really, it was a very wide selection of, of, of environment or of, of, of countries. Uh, and so I was talking about Muscovite political thought. Uh, and they pretty much agreed with me that it was really pretty different than, than what was going on in their fields. Uh, but I, I think then when you get to the question of uh, military affairs or the administration of the law, um, you find also quite striking similarities. But I think what happens both in political thought, but particularly in administration, is that there's a pace of change which is very rapid. So if you start in 1500, you really have a very, uh, uh, a very primitive apparatus that really is like, let's say, the apparatus of a Carolingian king. And uh, by the time you get to the time of Peter the Great, you have a highly developed bureaucracy with, with very, uh, very well uh, articulated rules of procedure. Uh, you have a very great law code, uh, really a belief in the rule of law. So what I was saying about Ivan the Terrible is certainly not true in the 17th century uh, and uh, is even less so uh, in the 18th century. Is well, that, is that... Yeah, yeah, that's what I was I was curious about. I just I've, I've always liked that essay and I was I was uh, wondering if you could talk about it a little bit. Uh, it was fun to write, I have to it, say. I, and, and, and I it's the one essay that doesn't have any footnotes in it. Yeah, uh, I, I so, hope that I hope that someday I get to write one of those. You know, yeah. <laughs> well, Aaron, you should. You know, you you have to give yourself permission to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I got, I didn't, I gave myself permission, but uh, I was imitating Ned Keenan, who, you know, that Russian folkways article, which is so famous, uh, uh, that 
that has you know essentially no footnotes either so i thought well if he can do it i can do it yeah yeah it's nice i think i think maybe maybe once in your life you ought to sit down and just say what's on your mind you know (laughs) (laughs) uh i thought maybe a good way of of wrapping up our our talk here might be that your book is kind of a unique occasion to look back and say okay what's different in you know the history or medieval and, and early modern Russian history now than it was fifty years ago. Like, are there are there big questions that you think uh, historians have reached conclusions or you know some kind of broad consensus on? Are there ones that you think are still really kind of out there and are up in the air? Where's the Where's the field at now in 2022 in terms of the really big questions that have animated it over the course of your you know career here? Well, Aaron, that's a again, that's a kind of sixty-four thousand dollar question, and uh, the reason I I wrote the final essay, the last essay in the book, the way I did, was that I didn't really want to answer it. Uh, that is to say, I didn't feel like I could sort of pontificate where the field was or, you know, kind of give a, a summary answer for my own work saying this is this is the truth and nothing else is the truth. Uh, but I think I did try to argue, and I think I, I argued with pretty good evidence, that uh, the idea that uh, basically early modern Russia was a kind of proto-dictatorship that was really ultra-authoritarian has been pretty largely discarded now by historians. I don't know any historians, either in the West or in Russia, really, who who are prepared to defend that. Uh, And there are certainly historians in Russia who've, who've in their own way, questioned it in a really interesting way, uh, with very close reading of of documentary sources. Um, And so uh, I think when it comes to the law, when it comes to court structure, which Nancy Coleman has written about, the Valerie Kivelson's incredibly imaginative reconstructions of the metal worlds of various uh, groups of people in Russia uh, in that time, um, Russell Martin's investigations of royal weddings, which they seem like a trivial, uh, you know, idea now. I mean, who wants to? Who cares about royal weddings? Uh, We've just seen how many people care about a royal funeral. Funeral, yeah. Yeah, you beat me to it. Anyway, it turns out the royal weddings were probably the most important event in the in the political life of the Muscovite court. And Russell has shown, again, how the Boyar aristocracy was able to manipulate what appears to have been an exercise of pure monarchical power. So I think the field has really moved away from what I would say is an oversimplified view. But... They haven't then said, well, Russia was a proto-democracy, uh, that the kind of sort of dreams and, and wishes of late 19th, early 20th century Russian historians are not where we've landed either. And I think we've landed uh, in a place where we think uh, that Russia probably was closer to contemporary Western Europe, uh, especially in the 17th century, uh, than has traditionally been thought. It's not uh, it's not a kind of uh, a view of Russian exceptionalism, which I think is a really interesting uh, word to use because it's been so important in American history. Uh, and it's used by Putin very much and by Russian national historians that we have our own path and we have nothing to do with Western Europe. Um, and uh, I think that uh, that also is not really true. Uh, and that and that uh, in each of these cases in political culture or ideology that I've been writing about uh, in the court structure, uh, in the law, uh, in royal weddings. It's a kind of complicated um, give and take uh, relationship between the ruler and chiefly the elite, but also reaching further down into society, um, certainly into into. Um, more humble servitors, military servitors, and sometimes down into the peasantry, that it's 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 not an all-powerful monarch. It's certainly not an all-powerful, uh, you know, citizenship. 
um, it's 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 a kind of uneasy mixture in which people are just trying to get along and find a way to solve very particular uh, problems. How do you administer the law? How do you run the court? Um, you know, how do you how do you field an army? Um, these are all pressing questions, uh, and they just were worked out. But they could only be worked out if the ruler and his elite were collaborating together. And if they ceased that collaboration, and particularly if factions broke out of court, uh, the situation could devolve very quickly, uh, and uh, you know, to civil war and bloodshed. Seems to me like uh, um, Donna Strauski just used the word symphony uh, to describe that in his most. Re- I actually just talked to him about that book uh, not too long ago uh, on the for the New Books Network as well. I think that was his phrase. That, that's an old uh, that's an old Byzantine uh, phrase. Uh, and Dmitry Obolensky, whom I mentioned earlier, really makes a very good case for there being uh, a, a, a concept of symphony uh, in Byzantium. And I agree with Don. I think that's a really a really nice word to use. It was it was it was the aim. It was the wish to for a symphony, but there was. You know, there are occasionally, uh, you know, people playing out of tune. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, you know, that's uh, sometimes people be flat when they should have been, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, well, thanks for uh, thanks for taking an hour to talk to me about the book, Dan. That's enlightening as always. So thank you very much. Aaron, it's a great pleasure. I remember our time when you were a graduate student with extreme fondness. And uh, uh and I, I just, uh, I, I love it. You're doing these interviews. Thank you for taking the time to inter- interview me about this book. I, I'm really happy about the book. I, I, I was, I felt, you know, a little bit reticent about my own work for much time, much of the time, but it's gotten a very good reception. And as I hold it up and look at it, you know, uh, I'm kind of proud of it. So well, I think, uh, uh, that's I understandable. It. So, uh, all right. Well, have a good rest of your day, Dan. Uh, Thank you, Aaron. Be well.